Comms Day Live and welcome to the show. Today, we've got to be looking back at a big news week. We had the launch of Labor's regional communications policy, which had quite a lot of zeros attached to it. We have a new scam policy from the Australian Communications and Media Authority. Um, We'll also be looking at an Australian data center company that's going into Asia and a Canberra semiconductor company that's doing some interesting things in the millimeter wave space. But first up, I wanted to step back from the news of the week that was to look at the Open RAN emerging segment. Basically, Open RAN is open source um, radio equipment where equipment from different vendors works interchangeably. Uh, it's a paradigm shift from what we've seen so far in the mobile world. One of the companies that's leading this push is Japan's NEC. I had the privilege of catching up with their global vice president product management in the 5G space, Patrick Lopez, all the way from North America, um, to fill us in on where OpenRAN is at internationally. Okay. Um, So... OpenRAN is relatively new uh, technology and concept. Um, as you know, it's been kind of uh, an offshoot of general open and disaggregated networks. Um, and I think prior to NEC, I was uh, at Telefonica. Right. Um, um, and my team, uh, I was managing the networks innovation team. Mm. Um, so playing with technology that were in advance of phase, if you want, uh, prior to commercial deployment at scale. I think my team was uh, one of the first to deploy open RAN in the field uh, in Latin America. Mm. Uh, before it was called Open Run. Uh, and then that team went on to write together with Vodafone uh, a joint RFI uh, at the TIP Summit, uh, which was kind of like an industry first, right? You had mm. two large operators that were getting together to define the requirements for a new technology. And the, the uh, RFI itself was open. So for the first time, not only it was public, the questions, but the responses were public as well in the sense that we, we ended up presenting the results um, of the RFI in terms of the selection of the vendors and their the level of maturity in the market. So that was... In 2017, I want to say, or 2018, maybe. Um, since then, uh, OpenRAN has evolved from a concept and a curiosity to a technology that's been deployed uh, at scale, uh, but not everywhere. Not everywhere yet. Uh, most. I think most operate. Sorry, most uh, vendors uh, had looked at Open RAN as a complementary technology to start with. Mm. So something to deploy maybe in rural environments uh, where there is low density of users, because obviously, I mean, the requirements are you know um, easier uh, to manage. Uh, NEC, by contrast. Uh, went the other way and from the very beginning NEC decided that you know we have to be radically open but without compromise 
so it has to be a true open environment multi-vendor but with the same level of performance and quality that you can expect from other vendors so sorry it's a long answer but at the end of the day i think docomo were the first operator to deploy open run commercially uh, and then that was uh, followed by uh, rakuten mobile uh, who was the first to deploy open run massive mimo and in both ca- in both cases uh, docomo and uh, uh, rakuten mobile selected nec's products so that was kind of two years ago something like that um, and in the meantime um, well a number of operators have uh, basically been evaluating open run as a technology from a maturity standpoint and i've come to the conclusion that yes uh, it is actually deployed in dense urban environments like tokyo uh, which speaks to maturity uh, of the technology so and it is multi-vendor uh, so they've started to do their own uh, trial deployment or, uh, themselves so companies like uh, telefonica group uh, dutch telecom group vodafone group also have selected uh, NEC, uh, as well as, uh, I think, we didn't announce it, but I think the CEO of the company announced it, so uh, Drillish in, uh, in Germany, uh, one-on-one. Um, so most operators that have deployed OpenRAN, uh, mostly in trials today, but some of them in commercial operations have selected NEC. Uh, there are a couple of others that have uh, made deployments that have not selected NEC yet uh, that we cannot uh, discuss, uh, most notably DISH uh, in North America and the US. Yeah. Um, and then there are a couple of uh, Latin American properties that have been deploying open RAN on a HADOC basis as well. Yeah, okay. Now, I, I talked to... Um I talked to the the CTOs and the, the technology people and the operators here, and they say, uh, "Look, Open RAN sounds like an intriguing concept, but I'm not. I'm locked in with my fender. I'm not unhappy. <laughs> so, what yeah. do you what do you do to dissuade me from that notion?" Um, you know, everyone. It's a journey, right? Uh, everyone. Uh, Will gauge for themselves whether open run is applicable or desirable in their market and certainly we don't say that you know i think what we say is that open run is another uh, technology but we advocate what we advocate also is that for 5g uh one size does not fit all uh and in the past that's why kind of that was kind of the path right in the past operators had maybe two or three vendors to choose from so they would give like one vendor east and the other one west or north and south (laughs) and basically you know uh and then each vendor had their products and they had to kind of optimize and blanket their geography with that but it wasn't really optimized in the sense that basically you know you had some macros some small cells and you did the best you could to cover and it was okay because up to 4g basically you know connectivity is the same for everyone uh you know uh so if you're in the center of sydney or melbourne or in canberra um you know doesn't matter whether you're a consumer or an enterprise or whether you're a first responder or uh, a machine to machine basically your connectivity products the same 
Um, 5G, the promise of 5G is that you're going to be able to create connectivity products that are going to be specific uh, for different use cases, different geographies, different verticals, etc. Um, and with that comes the notion as well that, you know, a product or a solution that's been created for like the urban environment in the city center of Tokyo might not be, you know, the best product to put, uh, I don't know, in a rural environment or indoors or, you know, on, I don't know, a vehicle. Um, and that, uh, therefore, you know, you need to be able to have more options in terms of number of products. And one way to do that is to break uh, the RAN ecosystem into components and have open interface between them so that you can pick and choose and design uh, a fit for, for, for purpose network. And certainly, you know, you can probably meet uh, all the same expectations that you had in the past with a single vendor or dual vendor approach that you had until now. Uh, but the consensus seemed to be that the ecosystem is going to be richer which allow, is going to allow you to move faster if you have more vendors um, and that also more vendors will lead to more competition which will lead to more uh, uh, innovation and also to uh, lower costs so in the mid-long term you know you might be able to meet the same operational need with uh, your traditional approach but maybe not at the same profitability point and maybe you won't be able to create connectivity products that are specific uh, for smaller niche market with your one size fit all kind of solution so i think that's the overall you know rationale and then you know when it comes to specific markets um you know i so I live in Canada, and by many aspects, Canada is very similar to Australia from uh, a telecoms uh, markets perspective. And the 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 challenge of covering uh, a continent uh, with wide variation in terms of number of users, uh, concentration of users, uh, different type of use cases. Um, makes it difficult economically uh, to tie yourself to vendors that have a very vertical ecosystem. Certainly not economical. Um, that's that's the feeling. Um, and I think that, you know, um, we are about to see that private networks uh, and uh, uh, private 5G and then in the future slicing uh, is the promise of 5G prof profitability. And well, it's not going to be, it's like IoT if you will, there's not one IoT. There's hundreds of different IoTs. Uh, each of them with different verticals, with different devices, different protocols sometimes. And slicing and private 5G are a little bit the same, you know? And what we see in the market globally is that maybe network operators are not the best place <laughs> to be delivering all the different flavors of 5G, all the different flavors of, uh, of slicing. Um, but what they can do is create uh, connectivity products to enable them um, 
and, but that's really difficult with vendors that have a very slow roadmap, which traditionally incumbent vendors tend to be, let's say, less dynamic than newer vendors, if you want. So all of those elements, if you want, are not definitive answers, but are indication that, you know, Open RAN seems to be uh, an interesting uh, technology for operators that want to create connectivity products at a lower cost um, and faster time to market than, you know, traditional uh, vendors. Yeah. Okay. Um, how, how important is vendor diversity in, in the 5G ecosystem? Because obviously in markets like Australia and the US, we've excluded vendors um, yeah. on national security grounds. And there have been yeah. some concerns that that leaves us with, well, in, in Australia, effectively a duopoly mm -hmm. of, of vendors. Yeah. And that's not seen as good enough. So yeah. how... It, it, it's, it's not just a question of is Open RAN a good thing or not, but almost is it an essential thing to, to overcome some of these challenges that we have right now? I think so, right? I mean, it's kind of a perfect storm, right? So we've seen, I mean, we've seen the geopolitical situation evolve and it's still evolving, right? Just, I mean, a month ago, uh, I mean, there are still vendors of, out there that uh, have, uh, um, you know, uh, difficulties uh, with the geopolitical environment. That's going to continue. Uh, so all that to tend to maybe force the operators to consider that vendor diversity is a necessity. Uh, because nobody has a crystal ball, so nobody knows really what's going to, what what kind of uh, liabilities are going to uh, occur in the future, and therefore being able to swap vendors, being able to swap solutions, um, and have basically very standardized kind of uh, solutions where you have open interfaces that are well tested, that are published, um, is an asset uh, for an operator that wants to minimize the risk of operation over the long term. So certainly, Open RAN can be an instrument of that. Yeah. Well, moving on, we're going to take a look at the week that was with Simon Ducks, the Chief Editor of Comms Day. Welcome, Simon. Hi there, Graham. Now, we're going to look first of all at an exclusive that you had in Comms Day this week. Uh, in the data center market, a company called Edge Centers has got some very big plans and they revealed them to you. Tell us all about it. That's right. Uh, we know Edge uh, have been rolling out uh, off-grid uh, data centers across uh, Australian uh, regions. But uh, interestingly, they've taken their business model and uh, they're looking to do the same thing uh, with a little nuance to it uh, by expanding across uh, the Asia-Pac market. So speaking with our founder and CEO, uh, Jonathan Eves, and he essentially said that they're going to be on track uh, to deploy 10 facilities across Asia uh, in additional markets, including Indonesia, Thailand, Philippines uh, over the next 12 months. So they've uh, managed to get Series A funding uh, to the tune of 12 million uh, from a Malaysian company, and uh, they're called CloudLink Solutions. 
and uh, uh, the director there is Ronnie Lim, who uh, is uh, well known in the optical uh, space and has a whole uh, bunch of companies as well in this sort of area. Uh, and the interesting thing with this is that uh, Jonathan told me that they're also looking at expanding into building cloud, uh, sorry, uh, cable landing station facilities. Very similar to uh, what uh, Next DC has ended up with at the Sunshine Coast. Um, so you actually have uh, on-prem uh, cloud facilities at the landing station. And given the plethora of cables that are going in all across Asia, it's probably timing-wise, it's not a bad thing to do. And now uh, Jonathan also mentioned to me that they will be looking at moving into the uh, US market as well, uh, although he didn't have a, a timescale on that. And uh, he has teed up a uh, US company called Datacube. And uh, these guys build, uh, in a terrible term, a thing called Podular, so uh, modular pods, uh, so very small endpoint data centers, very similar to an uh, Australian company like uh, Zella DC, although their business uh, model is a little bit different. And uh, these things can be put in business parks and then uh, linked back to the edge uh, center facility, for example, uh, in uh, Kuala Lumpur, which is where the uh, first Asian uh, uh, building is going in. And uh, then uh, you've got that extra uh, connectivity for the enterprise much closer uh, to the edge, essentially. So he gave me an update on what's happening with uh, the Australian um, rollout as well. Uh, Shepparton uh, is uh, very close to uh, starting work and he should have approval for the Gold Coast One facility in the coming weeks. And uh, the interesting thing there is that uh, almost in anticipation, he is actually building a cable landing station in the Gold Coast. Uh, we don't know which way Remy Galasso is going to go uh, with his Gold Coast landing yet, but you could imagine uh, Next DC Edge and Leading Edge will all be uh, very keen uh, participants uh, looking at uh, the possibility of uh, being the partner there. Okay, moving on, uh, another interesting Australian company um, doing innovative things, um, this time a semiconductor company in Canberra, <laughs> not, not, not uh, words that you associate with each other very much, um, doing, doing some very interesting things in the mobile space. Tell us about that, Simon. That's right, Graham. It's uh, quite an interesting little uh, Canberra-based semiconductor startup called Millibeam, who have come out of stealth. They've got some uh, main sequence funding of $750,000. And I spoke to their uh, CEO, Venkata Gutta, to uh, work out where they're trying to position themselves. Because as you can imagine, the investment that you're putting into uh, 5G chipsets, uh, you know, you're competing against the likes of Qualcomm and Broadcom. So, uh, you know, you've got to get your absolute niche uh, very well set out. So he's essentially uh, developing chipsets that will uh, give system energy efficiencies above 25%, he uh, imagines, for the next five years. So he thinks that these particular chipsets can go into access points, handsets, and base stations. And obviously, with the emerging open RAN market, uh, there could be some opportunities there as well. He pointed out that uh, when you look at uh, the current uh, high-power, high-efficiency chipsets 
that he's looking to do, he's suggesting that they will overcome what he says beamformers uh, have as a disadvantage, and that is the fact that they already consume high power, and that limits their efficiency. Now, uh, if you can imagine, uh, when uh, rolling out some of those things, uh, the range also is impacted because, uh, as we know with MMWAVE, you're only looking at about 100 metres, sometimes less, uh, when you're in the field. So it's going to be interesting to see how he actually uh, builds this out, whether he engages with telcos directly or whether he's actually uh, going straight to uh, the chip manufacturers. Uh, They have a team of IC designers and test and verification engineers distributed right across Australia. His background is semiconductors. Uh, He's published a lot of papers on the back of that. Um, But uh, it's going to be a very interesting one to watch on which way this company turns out. Okay, terrific stuff, Simon. Uh, A couple of really interesting stories there this week, um, which do show that there are signs of life in the Australian innovation sector, if nothing else. Well, let's take a look at the week that was with Rowan Pearce, the executive editor of Comms Day. Welcome, Rowan. Hey, Graham. Now, first up, um, we're well and truly into election season. As we record this podcast, Scott Morrison had not yet made the drive to Yarralumla, but I'm assured it will happen any moment. Um, and that means one thing. It means campaign season. It means expensive promises with nine or ten zeros next to them. And the federal opposition made a big one of those this week. Tell us all about it, Rowan. I know we're actually at the stage where maybe Simon could dash down the stairs madly yelling at us that the election's been called or something halfway through the podcast. Ah. Yeah, so, so Anthony Albanese appeared at the um, National Farmers Federation and it was quite interesting because a big portion of his speech, uh, relatively speaking, was actually focused on regional comms. And it's that thing of like, I can't really remember um, like a, a Labour leader or a Labour opposition leader really making such a big deal of regional comms in the, in the past. So some of the kind of major points were he pledged $400 million, which would be used to expand multi-carrier mobile coverage, particularly targeting roads, um, along roads, as well as regional homes and businesses. And one interesting thing about that is it would be kind of underpinned by a $20 million audit of regional mobile coverage, which would kick up in 2022, and actually use uh, Australia Post's fleet, fitting them out with a uh, mobile signal measurement devices and using that to kind of like get a real picture of uh, where there are um, additional black spots that can be targeted. So uh, it's interesting. Labor believes that it'd be kind of more cost effective than I guess like using one of the kind of existing um, commercial providers. Um, uh, Other elements were $30 million spent on on on-farm connectivity, um, also another $200 million for kind of regional connectivity uh, program staff funding. And I guess this all follows as well on earlier commitments that Labor's made um, around things like you know, expanding FTTP to additional regional premises as well as increasing SkyMaster data allowances and supporting NBN's kind of upgrade um, plans. So government, government's actually um, argued that this Labor's commitments represent a kind of cut to what they've, um, they've suggested for regional comms, although I'm not... I uh, haven't seen Labor saying that they wouldn't support any of the kind of uh, regional comms initiatives actually in the budget. So it's interesting, actually, because this builds on, like, it feels like there's been so much discussion around regional comms for the last, like, 12, 24 months, really. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I'll probably have a bit more to say about this closer to the election or, or perhaps immediately afterwards. But um, um, just a personal view, the the spending frenzy on regional comms to me really now just seems like a shouting match. And 
there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence-based research behind why the dollar figures are at where they are. Um, they just seem to be numbers plucked out of thin air. But we'll see. Um, I, I guess one encouraging thing, as you just mentioned there, about the Labor policy is that they do actually intend to audit mobile coverage to identify need. And at least that's a small genuflection in, in the direction of an evidence-based policy. So um, you know, good wrap-up there, Rowan. Anyway, moving on, um, big story um, from the Australian Communications and Media Authority, and that's a, a whole lot of new rules um, around SIM cards designed to help eliminate spam. Tell us all about it. Or scams. Sorry, not spam. I get them confused all the time. All right. There's nothing I like more than some scam on toast in the morning. Yeah, um, yeah. so th these were new, new determination from the ACMA, which basically set up new rules about multi-factor authentication when, uh, when an existing customer engages in what's considered a high-risk transaction. So that can consider things like you know, anything where a customer could potentially lose access to the service or involves the purchase of a new device or a change of personal information. So it, it, is, it is particularly targeted like SIM swap fraud, um, I guess, and the you know it doesn't cover unauthorized mobile porting, which is actually already covered by an industry standard that was um, registered by the ACMA in 2020. And one one interesting thing about it though is obviously um, with the new determination, like the Comms Alliance had already developed an industry code that was seeking to register with the ACMA, and the kind of impression I got when the ACMA first came out with their proposal to make a determination around the issue was that people were a bit irked that this was kind of covering some of the well exactly the same ground, I guess. In response, the ACMA's argument is that, well, the issue is urgent and using a, using a determination rather than an industry standard means that they can kind of act more quickly and more firmly on any breaches. Um, although I guess the question that, that that does raise for me is that, well, you're combating mobile number porting with a standard, but SIM swaps you're combating with a determination. So I'm not kind of sure if there's a bit of a disconnect there, really. Yeah, good point. And, and there seems to be a lot of this confusion taking place in the regulatory sphere right now um, in, in another field that involves this week um, the announcement of two separate inquiries <laughs> into the mobile tower market. Um, what, what, one looking at corporate ownership and how it impacts on, on fairness and discrimination in access. Um, and the other one looking at... Uh, particularly the regional sub-market of mobile towers and and um, the competition issues there. Um, of course, by definition, most of the towers are in the regions already. So it's, it's um, kind of a slightly duplicative process there. But, you know, we're seeing this time and time again and no nowhere more than in consumer regulation where there just does seem to be a lot of overlap and misdescription of labels and so on. Thank you very much, Rowan, for joining us today. Cheers.